This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares. Afraid Laura's away on a coach tour of Asia, so our podcast regular Tom is joining me for the next few weeks to ensure I talk about pensions and Blackburn Rovers. Hello. Yes, that <laughs> will be happening. <laughs> so this week we're talking about how the coronavirus has impacted the value of investments. Why Woodford investors may not be too pleased with their first batch of income fund refunds. And we've got James Smith, He's a fund manager from Premier Mighton. He's going to talk about everything to do with infrastructure investments. And finally, we'll have a chat about the difference between ICEs and SIPs for people taking an income from their investments in retirement. But first up, let's look at how the coronavirus has been spooking the markets. So, Dan, what exactly is going on in the world at the moment? Well, Markets are very worried, I mm. think is to put it mildly. Um, I think at the, the time of recording this, there was no sort of sign about how they might properly contain mm. it from spreading around the world. Um, so since the 17th of January, um, it seems to be when the stock markets peaked and they've been increasingly worried since then. So just to give you some idea of how share prices have moved around the world, um, in Hong Kong, the, the main stock market index there is the Hang Seng Index, and that's fallen by 9% um, in just, you know, that's a couple of weeks. That's, that's a, you know, you haven't seen such a large movement like that in yeah. a very long time. In China's down 3%, the FTSE 100 in the UK is down 3%, and in America, the S&P 500 is down 2%. So what you're getting is, is investors are clearly worried about how this virus might affect, um, well, one, particularly the Chinese economy and also to the global economy. Mm. So you've got uh, the, the, the obvious stocks that are um, affected immediately uh, are, are the ones that have been falling the most. So this is like cruise ship company Carnival's down 17% in the last couple of weeks. Um, airlines have obviously started to say that they're going to sort of cutting flights to China. So British Airways owner IAG's down 14%. Um, Burberry, the luxury goods company, mm. that sells a lot of its stuff in China. Um, and if people are worrying about what will happen to the economy there and people not spending for a while, that their share's down heavily. And copper miner Antofagasta's down a sort of similar amount as well. So people worrying about Chinese commodities demand. So it's, it's really hard. If you've got money yeah. invested in your pension or in your ISAs and stuff, it's um, you will have probably seen uh, a big hit to it. But I think the most important thing is is don't panic about mm. these things. Because it must be really tempting. Because I, I know when, whenever um, whenever I'm on this podcast and, and very sensibly, um, Laura and yourself always always say don't, don't panic. But for investors and for lots of people generally, this feels like a kind of quite a panicky situation, doesn't it? Oh, People are absolutely. talking about it. I don't think it's quite a pandemic yet. We were talking about earlier about exactly how, how you define a pen- pandemic, but I know the, the World Health Organization are meeting, I believe, later this week um, to discuss whether they call this a global health emergency. So we've had the death toll, I think, is approaching 200, around 8,000 cases in various different countries. We've had British Airways stopping flights to to China. So, so I guess w- w- at what point should people get worried about this in terms of their investments? There's clearly a human part of this, which is you know, far of far greater importance than people's investments. But people who are investing their money are going to want to make sure that they're not 
expose their negative impacts of, I, I of this virus, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I, I think you know, if, if you've got exposure to emerging markets, um, and China particularly, mm. you're going to already have had a hit to your portfolio. Yeah. So uh, I guess it's you know, this, the situation could, if it gets very severe mm. and you're seeing deaths around the world, yeah. um, you know, the stock market will react like that. I don't know. I, I can't say for certain mm. when, you know, no one knows what's going to happen. Yeah. So you don't know. So therefore, if, if there's uncertainty, you don't know what's going to happen is, is to sit tight. Yeah. Know, I think is always the best thing. We can look at previous health scare situations like SARS is probably the best example. Um, yes, you had a big hit to stock markets. But what happened was when they saw that there was a peak in the number of cases, the markets rebounded really quickly. Mm. Um, so it's we always say don't try and time the market. So if, if you're already in your investments, yeah. um, you'll benefit from this rebound. Mm. But if you are if you sell everything after there's been a bit of a wobble um, and look for that entry point, you could risk it. But I, personally, I, I just don't think you should even be thinking about any yeah. of that stuff. Just, I, I would sit tight, but you might want to just have a look at your portfolio and, and just appreciate if things get worse. Um, you know, what, what sort of countries would would really suffer if the Chinese economy took a massive mm. hit? I've had a look. There's some data which suggests that South Korea, Hong Kong, Thailand, and Malaysia, they were going to be the worst ones in terms of being their GDP would be affected. Yeah. Japan, Vietnam, and Australia would be next. Now, Australia is quite an interesting one because they've already suffered because of the severe fires that we saw in December and the start of yeah. this month. Um, so they've already had a massive setback. So for this, the tourism between China and Australia is huge. Um, and so it's, it's just be aware of, of how the impact. Now, on, on the chart I saw that was produced by one of the investment banks, it sort of said, actually, from an economic point of view, the UK, as it stands at the moment, would be hardly affected at all. Mm. But the UK stock market would be because all, oh, no, not all of them, but a very large percentage of these companies in the FTSE 100, the biggest companies on the stock market, are global businesses yeah. um, and you know, there is a heavy weighting towards commodities so it's going to be linked to what China's doing China being the big commodities driver for the past decade um, there's you know there's big airlines in there and um, there's consumer goods companies that are selling into you know places that you know as well as China that you can just see that um, if, if the consumers are sort of worried about what's going on and any sort of slight cutback in their spending they they will be affected but i i think the the overriding message is is, is not to panic um keep a close eye on what's going on but you know really what we want is for this healthcare situation mm. to be amended um rather than sort of worrying about whether you're yeah. losing money or or, or or making money really yeah so, and I, re I read apparently the the there are developments in uh, california so they're looking to develop a vaccine which they say may or may not be ready but they're talking about june or july so it could be a significant period of time and i suppose it um it just drives home the fact that whenever you're investing anywhere at any time you need to do it for the long term you can't predict the future L literally anything can happen at any point in yeah. time and so it's impossible even the even the, the the brightest best fund managers in the world with all the research capabilities open to them wouldn't have been able to predict that this would happen. Now, they might say that we, they factor that into their processes and they factor in the risk that there will be some sort of a, an outbreak of a disease that's 
unpredictable. But the fact is, not nobody really knows what's going to going to happen, do they? No. So at the start of this year, if um, you, you tend to get a lot of sort of investment experts will mm. give their views about what what's what should you expect in yeah. the year ahead. Um, so firstly, no one was predicting there would be increased tensions between America and the Middle East. Yeah. And we, we had it with the, the tensions between Iran and America. Um, and that caused an initial wobble. Um, and certainly no one was talking about major health scares. Mm. Like I say, you, you just can't, you, you can't predict everything. Um, and at the moment, I, I am seeing sort of evidence there are some investors chasing what they think are Opportunities, and you talked yeah. about some um, companies in America trying to sort of develop a vaccine. Um, yes, yeah, so there, I've seen sort of examples of three pharmaceutical companies who've who've done it, and their share prices have, have jumped, but actually they've come straight back down again as well. Mm. And there's one, there's a company in um, Japan which is a surgical mask maker called Kawamoto. Its shares have gone up 495 percent wow. in two weeks. So that would Essentially, it would take you 353 years in a best before in a best buy UK savings account mm. to get that level of return. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, I think it's it's a bit dangerous trying to chase opportunities to think what's you know, who who could potentially benefit from the situation. That's very short term as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you. I've noticeably seen on the on the tubes in the streets of London more people wearing surgical masks. I'm not sure if that's if it's actually that more people are wearing it because of the fears of the coronavirus, or I'm just slightly more tuned into it and noticing people on the tube wearing masks and things like that to to try to presumably avoid the spread of spread of the disease yeah i mean there's i've certainly i I was reading a story about how boots have sold out of masks Mm. in uh, various stores in the uk so i actually went onto amazon i thought okay could i buy one everything out of stock or wow or or ludicrous prices people seeing an opportunity which is um yeah i think it's a bit of a shame that this this these situations Mm. happen you know particularly people trying to sort of um, capitalize on um, a very horrible situation yeah. so um yeah so it, it's it's you know we'll come back in a week's time and we'll update you about what's happened with the you know the world of investments again i think so on to next topic so people trapped in woodford's income fund are finally getting some of their money back having had it locked away since last june i know such a long time you, you'd have thought that's actually good news but uh, I'm certainly getting a suggestion from the stories I'm reading that there's lots of people disappointed. So, Tom, yeah. give us an overview of exactly what's happened. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I can't believe June was the point at which um, uh, at which the fund was suspended. That period of time seems to have gone past very quickly. So, a bit of background. So, June 2019, um, dealing in the Woodford Equity Income Fund, um, Neil Woodford's flagship fund after he set up his own uh, investment house um, was suspended following a spike in redemption. So lots and lots of people wanted to take money out of the fund. It was felt that it needed to be suspended in order to protect investors' interests. Um, during that that suspension, investors haven't been able to redeem, purchase or transfer shares in the fund. Um, initially, the hope was that this would give Neil Woodford time to reduce exposure to some of his illiquid stocks, so some stocks that are quite difficult to sell, and rebalance the portfolio to some more liquid stocks, so some more kind of standard common garden um, stocks that are easier to sell. Roll forward to October, and uh, it was announced that the equity income fund was being wound up altogether, um, with whatever money is left being returned to investors. And so this week, as you said, we've had the first the announcement of the first distribution 
um, of some of the money to investors. So 2.1 billion after costs um, set to go back to investors. Uh, that's about 70% of the value of the assets. So that's quite important. It's, mm. it's the value of the assets, right? It's not 70% of um, the value of the money that you would have initially put in. No, because, no uh, the value of the assets yeah. now. Yeah, so it's, it's it's likely to be significantly lower than 70% of the, of the money that people have initially put in. Um, the fund has obviously suffered some quite poor performance over a long period of time. Um, also important to note that that's just the liquid part of the fund as well. So the, in a way, this is... I mean, it's bad news for investors in that they're losing money, but it's been fairly clear for a long period of time now that the Woodford story wasn't going to end well um, on a total return basis for investors. It's just a, a case of how bad the hit is going to be. So in one way, at least it's some clarity for people, or at least the beginnings of some clarity for people who've been locked in this fund. They can at least start to understand and see how much money they've lost. On the other hand, there's a reasonable argument, I think, to be said that this is actually the the easy bit in terms of the, the practicalities of selling off all of the assets. So selling off liquid assets, probably quite a lot easier than selling off some of the more esoteric things that exist within that fund. And I think the difficult bit now is going to be trying to find buyers for some of the the less liquid assets, which was always going to be the difficult bit, I think, really. Yeah, it might be worth just, just clarifying mm. this, this stuff about liquid and illiquid. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. So, so liquid will refer to companies that are actually trading on a stock market. Mm. So there's there's already a platform by which it's bringing together investors who, are, who want to buy and sell. Yeah. Now, illiquid stuff will be sort of obscure companies who... Um, they're, they're, pro- they're essentially they're privately owned. Now, it's all fund managers might have been one of these people who who have bought into you know, own a little slice of it, but because they don't trade on a stock exchange, it's really difficult to find someone else who wants to buy them. Mm. So, it certainly looks like that that you know you've you've got some money coming yeah. to you from today is as we're recording it. Uh, people start to get it. The f- there's another lump potentially coming, but no one knows mm. how much you'll get. And no one knows when you'll get that money. It's yeah. almost like you, I, I don't know. People might even think should potentially treat it as, um, yeah, they may get nothing. They may actually get nothing. I guess that's the worst case scenario. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. I mean, you would hope that wouldn't be the case. I mean, yeah. clearly these are these are assets which you would hope would have at least some value, even if it's massively reduced from what it was what it was worth previously. But the, I guess, the frustrating thing for investors is the the lack of control here, and the, all you, all you can do is sit tight wait for updates, listen to podcasts like this, which will clearly be keeping people updated, check the personal finance sections and all, all the rest of it. But the, there's there's little to be done for people who are stuck in that position other than wait and see what the companies that are, that are selling these these underlying assets are able to able to get for them, from them. And that is, as you say, preparing for the worst probably psychologically isn't a bad thing to hmm. do because you've got no control. Prepare for the worst and then whatever happens, you'll at least have some money back, which you can then go on to, to invest um, or spend well, this is elsewhere. So, so, so this is the big question. Mm. What will people do with their money? Now, I fear that there's going to be some people who have just viewed the whole incident as being too traumatic, too oh, yeah. stressful, and they're going to say, that's it, I'm never touching stock market again, I'm going to put it into cash. Mm. Now, 
everyone has a different circumstances, um, different risk appetites, but I would suggest, you know, I would think very hard um, about, you know, if you're going to sort of turn your back on investments, whether yeah. that's wise, particularly if you've got lots of time on your side that you're still trying to um, save for the future. Investing returns have historically have been much better than cash, um, as long as you understand the risks. So yeah. uh, if you were to stick with it um, and looking for another income fund, one strategy might be to consider spreading that money across, say, three or four different funds. Mm. So you're not exposed to one other person. And you know, I think everyone that's been, certainly people I talk to, um, and the way I've been thinking about stuff is the lesson to be learned from this situation, Woodford, is that you need to understand what's in a fund and yes. what they're trying to do. And and if the fund manager's doing something a bit different from when you've bought it, you think, well, okay, they've, this is called you know, the style drift. They've deviated from their process. And that's when you think, okay, that's not what I signed up for. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, I'm, anyone who is getting money back, I hope you aren't too disappointed you know it's been a horrible situation and, and um you know stick stick with investing if you yeah. if you can yeah i think i think i think take a take a breath um i think as you say it's been probably quite a traumatic experience quite an emotional experience for a lot of people and and i i would absolutely understand the temptation to just issue investing altogether but as you as you say particularly over the long term inflation's going to eat away at any money that's held in cash you look at the rates on offer from things like cash ices they're miserably low frankly and so if you want to avoid the deleterious impact that inflation has over a long period of time and it's that compound impact of rising prices as well then stock markets are the most effective way of achieving that based on your own ability to tolerate risk and all the rest of it. So, yeah, just take a, take a moment and think about what your long-term goals are and and reset. And, and as you say, learn some of the lessons from this as well, which are that no, no single person is immune to the things that can happen to their underlying portfolio. And you need to know exactly what your fund manager is doing, where your money is, and be comfortable with how that money has been invested. Very wise words. So away from Woodford, we've had a listener called Andrew asking if we could take a look into the infrastructure sector, which has been very popular with people looking for high dividend yields. Dan and Laura met up with a fund manager to run through Andrew's question and to chat about the sector in more detail. Let's now listen to that interview. So we're here with James Smith, the fund manager and infrastructure specialist from the asset management firm Premier Mighton. So James, we've had a listener get in touch with some concerns about investing in infrastructure assets. Uh, they were giving the example of investing in a wind farm with the hope of getting 5% annual dividend yield. They're sort of making the point that if it only had a 20-year life, that the value of the assets effectively went down by about 5% a year. So you'd make 5% a yield, but you'd lose 5% capital value. So it's a bit, a bit of an odd situation. Why, why would you think this is actually a good investment? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, and very interesting one. Um, I would actually um, challenge a couple of the assumptions there. I mean, firstly, with wind farms and particularly with solar farms, um, because these are quite new assets, no one really knows yet how long they'll last. And in recent experience, the companies have actually changed from a 25-year uh, accounting life to a 30-year life. So I would, I would think that 20-year assumption is probably a bit low. 
Uh, and secondly, yes, the companies do pay around about a 5% dividend yield, but that doesn't necessarily represent all of their cash flow. Uh, they do usually retain some cash flow, typically about 20%. Um, I think some of the solar funds are a bit less than that. Um, but if they retain some of their cash flow, that gives them um, as, uh, further cash to invest in, in new assets. Um, and lastly, you have to think, what do we do with a wind farm at the end of its life? Uh, well, recently, some of the older ones have been recommissioned with newer, uh, more modern turbines. But the planning permission for, to, to recommission or, or to repower uh, an asset that's already there is a lot easier than a, a new asset on a greenfield site. So those assets, even at the end of their life, may have some optionality value. And so investors have been flocking to infrastructure trusts particularly recently, um, and that means that they've moved up to a premium, which effectively means that investors who are new and coming in are paying more than the underlying value of the assets. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that presents a particular risk to investors? It's, it's an, another interesting question. Um, there's a few different ways that you can inv invest in infrastructure. Um, the UK retail market, as you point out, has been very keen on buying the renewable energy uh, closed-end funds or investment trusts. Um, but there are other ways. There are, there are of course, open-ended funds investing in listed infrastructure assets. Uh, and there's a couple of closed-end funds, of which I run one of them, uh, investing in listed assets. So just to point out here, this so, is um, vehicles that are investing in companies that are yeah. investing in that area rather than directly buying the wind farms or the solar farms, Yes, right? that, that would be right. So the question really relates to those companies owning uh, unlisted private equity type assets. So for instance, Greencoat UK Wind or 3i infrastructure uh, companies of that nature. Um, now, yes, you're right. They do tend to trade at a reasonable premium to their published net asset value. Um, but you have to then think, what is that net asset value and, and how is it calculated? Uh, well, it's calculated by the management or rather the directors. Um, and they, I mean, the main task they have is to forecast the future cash flows and then discount them back uh, to a, an appropriate current value. Now, that discount rate they use has a very large bearing on the, the, the result that you get as a current value. Now, we've seen interest rates uh, in the market move down quite sharply over the past couple of years, uh, and that has meant that investors are basically prepared to pay more um, and receive a lower return than the discount rates being used. So, I mean, typically, for instance, discount rates may be 7 or 8%. If you're happy with, say, a 6% return, you'd be prepared to pay slightly more than that asset value. So I'd say you have to look at the individual uh, company uh, and the individual circumstances. It's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer, really. So, but so many people are sort of drawn to infrastructure investing because they think they're going to get access to sort of this good cash flow time. Do you think something like an airport or a gas pipeline might be better long-term investments because there's sort of a risk of technology um, developments making that dated is perhaps a bit less than something like a solar farm where technology could, could make uh, you know, an existing farm today be um, worth a lot less tomorrow, potentially? Well, <clears throat> I think if we, if we give the example of a solar farm, um, solar and wind or renewable energy assets around the world tend to sell their output on a, a long-term fixed-price contract. So to that extent, they're quite insulated really from uh, movements in technology in the sense that they have a government or some other entity which is guaranteed to buy all their output 
um, for the next usually 20 years, uh, sometimes longer. Um, so quite low technology risk, I'd say. Um, if we move on to airports, you know, or, or gas pipes, as the examples you gave, um, I think one thing that is a constant is the world is always changing. So who knows, we, you know, in 20 years' time with the fight against climate change, perhaps governments will have increased um, air passenger duty to such an extent that we're all flying less. Um, and of course, that would, one assume, would have a, a negative value on, on airport assets, for instance. If we take gas pipes, of course, when you burn gas, you produce carbon. So perhaps in the future, we'll use less gas. And if we can generate uh, renewable energy, you know, in abundance from cheap carbon-free renewable sources, perhaps we'll just use more electricity and, and less gas. Um, so it's noticeable in the UK, for instance, I think the government um, from 2025 wants to stop installing new gas-fired domestic boilers, um, progressively move the country to electricity. So I think certainly electricity assets may be more um, immune from technological change, but I, I don't think gas pipes or airports are immune. And so we've talked about some specifics there, but when you're looking for infrastructure investments, what's the kind of checklist that you go out with? What kind of things are you looking for? I think the main thing is a solid uh, regulatory, regulatory and political background. Um, and that does vary from country to country and from asset to asset. So if you can find an asset with a long-term contract or long-term regulatory structure, uh, then that's a positive. So, for instance, things like toll roads, where you may have a 30-year concession life, uh, which says that the operator can increase their tariffs every year by inflation, that gives an investor a high degree of visibility. So we certainly look for uh, low political risks. Um, and I'd, I'd also look for assets in areas where there is increasing demand. Um, so for me, for instance, in my funds, um, things like China, uh, is, is a place where they're increasing their electricity consumption, increasing their usage of renewable energy, um, changing the way they handle waste. So politics uh, really working in favour of those changes. So if you can work with governments rather than against, that's something also to look for. So can you give me an example of perhaps one of your best investments you've had recently? I think that probably the most um, successful in, in financial terms investment we've had over the past couple of years uh, is a Brazilian water company uh, in the state of Paraná in southern Brazil. Um, and in Brazil, uh, historically, regulation has been very difficult in the water sector. There's been a lot of political influence and tariffs have been kept very low for political reasons. And that's meant that the companies haven't had sufficient money um, to actually build new assets. Now, over recent years, that's changed, uh, and they've changed the way they regulate their water business to bring it in line with their electricity sector and in line with the norms that we see regulated infrastructure um, the, the world over. And that's led to a large valuation gain in that particular company, and that remains one of our largest investments. Um, so I think that's one example. Uh, last year, we had the benefit of falling interest rates for most of the year. Um, so uh, we did very well on renewable energy stocks, particularly in the States. Um, so similar to the UK infrastructure sector, but uh, in America, um, and they all had a valuation gain on, on the back of that, more of a technical uplift, really. And so you talked a bit there about some of the drivers for the fund's performance last year, and, and you had decent performance last year, but not as good the previous year. So there's obviously, uh, some people might think of infrastructure as being relatively low risk, um, but there clearly can be more volatile performance. So what are the kind of 
What are the reasons for underperformance in some years and what are the things that investors should look out for that might signal that? Well, both my funds, the Closed End Investment Trust and the Open Ended Fund, were investing in listed assets. So we have two risks. First, we have the risks on the assets themselves in terms of their earnings and profitability. And secondly, we have the risk, what one could describe, I suppose, as market risk. What does the market think about those investments? What price is the market prepared to pay? So in 2018, you're, you're right, it was quite a difficult year. Uh, and the main reason for that was our emerging market investments. Um, and the value of those fell uh, in 2018. There was a couple of reasons for that. I mean, oil prices were high, US dollar was strong, and those tend to be quite negative scenarios for emerging market investments. However, on, on the other hand, I would say that the companies themselves continued to increase their earnings, uh, continued to increase their volumes, and continued to increase their dividends. So for long-term investors, perhaps it presented more of an opportunity um, than, than anything else. Uh, now, in 2019, emerging markets, uh, they haven't fallen quite so much, but neither have they seen the gains that we've had uh, elsewhere. So that situation is, is still ongoing. But for me, personally, as long as the underlying investments are performing well in terms of their earnings and their dividends and their asset growth, then you know, I'm prepared to hold them for the long term and look through short-term market movements. So last year, there was a lot of fear that if Labour got into power, they would re-nationalise quite a lot of infrastructure assets. And that obviously had a negative impact on quite a lot of infrastructure-related investments. Is that a risk that's in other parts of the world as well, sort of political intervention? It, it can be. Um, there is a rather lazy assumption that emerging markets are high risk and developed markets are low risk. And I think last year in the UK, um, that was rather turned on its head. And in fact, developed markets politically can be every bit as risky as emerging markets. Um, that said, we do have one situation ongoing at the moment in the Philippines, um, where President Duterte wants to rewrite the contracts that the government um, gave to the water sector there. So that's causing a fair amount of turbulence. Um, but it's quite, it's quite unusual to see nationalisation threats um, it does happen, and it's one of the key risks that we have to watch out for. And so we're obviously talking constantly more about ESG or ethical investing. So do, you, do you think that will be a driver of investors towards the infrastructure, etc., as we look for kind of solutions to things like climate change? Yeah, I th well, the short answer is yes. Um, oh, great. If, if, Done. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I look at my own fund um, and, you know, my own investing career and investing history a few years ago, um, if you were to look at a fund, um, an infrastructure fund, it would have a lot of coal-fired power generation assets in it. Um, now it's more renewables. Um, and of course, you know, one part of that is beneficial for the environment. But in reality, the reason that we do it is because that's where the money is. Thermal power generation assets lose money. You know, you have things like the carbon tax. Um, and com competing with renewables is very difficult for them because renewables, by definition, have very low marginal costs. So really there's two drivers. There's the ESG driver and also there's a simple, it's common sense because it makes sense to do it because renewables are profitable. So yeah, we, we, you know, we, we do follow that general overall trend and it's not showing any sign of stopping. And do you get questions from investors about it then? Is that part of your switch as well or are you not seeing it at that level yet? Well, yes, I think investors do, you know, they want to know that they're investing in something that isn't damaging the environment. That, so that is important. Um, you know, whether it's 
thermal power generation or whether it's tobacco stocks or whatever. I mean, increasingly people are uncomfortable uh, about investing in those areas. Um, we do have some still thermal power generation exposure, but it's very, very small uh, and falling all the time, whereas renewables um, is, is growing. Brilliant. James, thank you ever so much. Really good, really interesting. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed Dan and Laura's chat with James. It's great that we're able to talk to the people you want, so please keep sending in your requests for interviewees. If you missed last week's show, Dan mentioned that he's going to interview well-respected fund manager Nick Train from Linzel Train very soon. Oh, that'll be good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, If you want to ask him a particular question, now is your chance. Email us via podcast at ajbell.com co.uk the more questions we get in from you i think the better the program will be so please email in yeah and actually on we've had quite a few on that one already Mm, so um you you've probably got uh you know if you listen to this every week you've got another week to send me those questions before before i go off to see them uh so we've actually had another listener been in touch um talking about taking income in retirement Mm. so steve mentioned he was thinking about taking some cash from a SIP, uh, which is a pension that you run yourself in case you didn't know what that sort of that term meant. Um, so he thought he'd take some cash from his SIP and put it into his ISA so he doesn't have to worry about tax in the future. Mm. So, Tom, what do you have to think about when you shift your money about like this? Yeah, so it was, it was an interesting question that came in. Um, we get lots and lots of questions around that. I should do a little plug as well for my shares column, actually. So if anyone wants to send in questions for my column that you want answered, then more than happy to do that on a weekly basis. But I think what the, the core issue within Steve's question, I think, is around trust around pensions so what he was talking about was um so with the sip you can get 25 percent of your money tax-free from age 55 and the other 75 percent is taxed in the same way as income so he's talking about moving so drip feeding some of his money out of his sip paying some income tax on that depending on how much he takes out and then putting that into an iso which he sees as a tax-free environment so from a tax perspective it doesn't really make any difference whether that money is in the SIP or is in an ISA. So the the terms on the investments, you still get investment growth in a SIP in the same way as an ISA. So all the, all the benefits when you're within that tax wrapper don't change as you move from one to another. So I think the issue here is whether people feel that they can trust to keep their money in a pension. And I think there's there's lots of historical things that go into people potentially not trusting pensions and not trusting the way they're going to work. So some of that will be down to governments over long periods of time making lots and lots of changes. So people, I think, are worried that there'll be another change to pensions that maybe will mean that their money will be taxed to a greater degree than it is at the moment when they take it out. So they just want it out of there immediately. Um, I even hear the name Robert Maxwell coming quite regularly in relation to the Daily Mirror pension scandal back in the back in the 90s which has got absolutely nothing to do with money invested in a SIP but it just shows um, equitable life another one it just it just shows how these these kind of multiple scandals that have been linked to pensions can often put people off and make them consider moving their money somewhere else and um, in a the FCA did a big study on the retirement market generally and one of the big concerns it raised was people 
who don't trust pensions for one reason or another, moving their money out, potentially all of their money out of a pension and into an, a cash ISA or a bank account, even paying 0% interest in a worst case scenario, taking a massive tax hit as a result because your pension is taxed in the same way as income. So the bigger the withdrawal, potentially the more tax you're going to uh, going to pay and also missing out on valuable investment returns over the long term. So to bring that round to Steve's question, I can I can understand the the desire to move money out of a pension. I can understand the the the, the wanting to have peace of mind over your money as well. But in terms of the the practical impl- implications of going from one to another, it makes no real difference um, to your to your retirement outcome. I would say if you do want to do this, then the main thing to make sure is don't pay more tax on your pension withdrawals than you absolutely need to. So if, if you're planning to take an income for you, from your pension fund, then take the income that you need to live on, but try not to take on take out any more than that because otherwise you'll be facing a tax bill that you could be avoiding by taking smaller withdrawals. Okay. Well, so we've got the budget coming up. We do. Fairly soon. Mm. I wonder if they're going to tinkle with the ISA um, sort of allowance. So it's £20,000 a year. Wouldn't Mm. it be great if they said, oh, we'll double that? Um, (laughs) Or am I just sort of living... This is sort of the the fantasies of someone who who spends too much time thinking about investments. Yeah, who who, who knows? I suspect if if they're going to do something big and positive for savers like that, we'll hear about it before the budget. I've not heard... I mean, obviously, ISA allowance has increased significantly in in recent years but if they wanted to hand a boost to savers then increasing the ice allowance is one one thing they could they could to do i think um as with all budgets unfortunately we're into the rumor period around pensions tax relief so rather than people talking positively about the potential for allowances to increase the the stories that are beginning to surface as they always do are, are around are the, is the government going to look to cut pension tax incentives as they have done repeatedly since 2010 in order to raise money potentially for other things so for the NHS and all the rest of it um, I think in the same way as with um, with investments it's it doesn't really make sense to try and second guess what the government is going to do because frankly nobody <laughs> knows um, people who are writing newspapers don't know I don't think the government will know at this stage what it's going to do sometimes these decisions are left right until the last minute so the best thing to do is make the most of the tax incentives that are available within your existing budget but don't pile loads and loads of money in that's potentially going to leave you struggling to make ends me stick to your plan the government will do what it's going to do if it does we'll tell you about it or you'll, you'll hear about it reactive events as they happen okay cool well thanks ever so much for listening this week please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform tell all your friends about how useful this podcast is we'll catch you next time cheers before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.